Over these past weeks of the Lenten season, we've been exploring together the various stages, phases, that people tend to pass through on their way toward a Jesus-like spiritual maturity. And tonight we come to reflect together on that particular season of the life of faith that we are terming loving faith. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, when he was asked how he would describe the highest and most important purpose of life, this is what he said. Your ultimate aim should be to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And it should be to love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, Jesus was saying, make it your daily intention to grow in love. Not just in nominal ways, not in just little ways, but to grow in love with all that you are. With everything of your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength, your very self. Grow in a love like mine. I am calling you, he told his disciples, to surrender yourself. Progressively, daily, absolutely, and utterly to the loving service of God and of neighbor. And if you would truly come after me, if you would be my disciples, if you would be my followers, then you must love as I have loved. All of the discovering, he was saying, all of the nurturing and the acting that make up the early stages of the spiritual journey, all of the, the questioning we do, the crossing of our old self, the renewing of focus that mark the later part of our pilgrimage as followers of Jesus, every single, every single step on the Christian pathway is aimed at this, at developing in you and in me a greater capacity to love the Lord our God and to love people. That's what it's all about. And even if we have lost everything else by the end of our lives, and frankly, at the end, we all do. Everything. Faith, hope, and love remain. Everything else, everything else is lost. Even if we have lost it all, we will have gained everything that really, really matters if God and our neighbors are moved to say, now this, this was a life filled with his amazing love. So I'm going to ask you again, as I'm asking myself, as I did at the start of the whole Lenten series, is, is this your goal? Is this my goal? Or we have, have we perhaps settled for something less than this? 
Are you taking intentional steps on the path that Jesus has marked out for us, not just by his words, but by his example? Or are we just hoping that we might get someplace roughly close by happenstance? For me, there is, at least in my clearest moments, there is nothing more important in my life than than doing what is required, opening myself in whatever ways are necessary to grow the life and love of Jesus. But this, I think, is precisely why I, for one, need to be here, so desperately need to be here tonight. It's this very goal or this ambition that Jesus sets before us that makes me need so deeply to take in the events of Good Friday for two reasons, I think, at least for me personally, with which some of you, maybe all of us, will find ourselves resonating as well. The first reason is because without Good Friday, without really taking in the meaning of Good Friday, I can easily get to thinking that I'm already a pretty loving person. I can get to believing that I'm pretty far along the spiritual journey, that I don't really have that much more growing to do, that maybe other people could be taking notes on my life. Because I love my family. I love my dog. I I, I love my friends. I love my church. I love my country. I love people, especially the ones that love me. I feel like I love God. I'm a loving person. Now, of course, there are those times when my family members do those things that kind of tick me off. And I feel like I need to waste them with my words or give them a whack upside the head for their, for their well-being, for their improvement. Sometimes my friends completely let me down. And it is only appropriate that they should get the cold shoulder because it's justice. And there are those days when people in my church or at least in my country, act so stupidly. Who could blame me for writing them off? And those ignoramuses that treat me so poorly at work? (laughs) Is it I, Lord? (laughs) I met out on the highway? I know I'm going to be forgiven for wanting to flip them the blue bird of happiness sometimes. Honestly, if I'm going to be ruthlessly honest with you, even God, even God blows it sometimes. Like that time when he would not take the cup of suffering from my lips, even when I prayed hard. Or when he just forsook me in the hour of my pain, I think I can be forgiven for backing off on my faith a little bit in those times. But but those times aside, I'm basically a loving person. 
And I think that this world would be a whole lot better if there were just more loving people like me. And maybe like you. Isn't that right? And then I come to Good Friday. And I find myself moved to think all over again. I see a being, at least I catch a glimpse of him, a being whose natural estate was to be clothed in unsurpassed glory. I see him stripped now, even of pauper's rags. And I watch as this, this head of his, this head that I believe by faith, the Bible teaches me it's the head that conceived the entire creation. I see that head punctured with a crown of thorns. And I see one who the scriptures say is worshipped by legions of brilliant angels. I see him now mocked and spit upon and struck again and again in the head by soldiers who've hardly progressed beyond third grade math. And I watch as they beat him, as they beat him to a place of execution. This man whose only crime it was to break the laws of a twisted religion by healing sick people and by feeding hungry people on the Sabbath when some felt no religious person should go there. They stretch him. They strep, stretch his whip-ribboned back and his limbs out upon a cross, and I see them pound those rusty spikes through those feet that had walked hundreds of miles, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And, and I sometimes get frustrated when I don't get a good parking spot hundreds of miles to bring good news to the poor. And I see those hands that reached out in grace to help lepers and to cradle children. And I see them pierced for my transgressions. And they gamble for his clothes. They gamble while keeping watch, the scripture says, lest he somehow escape never dreaming that with a mere thought, with the flash of a single neuron, he could, if he chose, take back all of his glory, summon a billion warriors to his side, and turn Rome and every vain empire of any stripe or name to vapor. For their hubris. And I see his cross raised now against the darkening sky. And I see his wounded flesh, at least in his, my mind's eye, I see that flesh sagging against the nails. And I watch as blood flows down. 
as blood flows down from those ragged wounds and his throat clenches in spasms of thirst. I view this one who had once breathed life itself into man, now struggling to rise up on the nails just to draw a single breath more into those burning lungs. And I wait for him. I wait for him in those moments. I wait for him to curse God and to condemn his tormentors because in that place, put in that place, I know, I know that is what I would do. But the only rage that comes is from those around him. Passers-by hurl insults at him. They mock his promise, crazy promise to be able to raise the temple in three days, never dreaming that it was his body that was the true temple of God. That God had come to tabernacle in the midst of humanity. And it was about that temple he was speaking Israel's religious leaders join in the chorus of spite. They just hate him. They hate him. The irony of it all, these religious leaders hating him. Because he tells story of, stories of a God who cares for people they don't like. They think are sinners, lost people, the other party, the other kind. How dare he speak of God loving them? And they despise him for unmasking their hypocrisy and their self-serving religion and blindly believing that they now finally have control again. They dare him to just prove his power by saving his own life, failing to understand the most crucial religious principle in all of the universe. That it is by giving up life in the service of love of God and of neighbor. that the greatest and most magnificent power of all is being unleashed. Still gets unleashed. And on the cross next to Jesus, there hangs a common criminal who now demands that Christ save him. Without any need of humility on his part, repentance on his part, it is your job. Jesus, if you are the Christ, save me. And I shudder to recognize something of myself in him. But still, no words of condemnation. 
Still no promise of destruction. Still no justified retaliation of any kind flows from the cross of Christ. No, instead, instead, we hear the flow of truth from the lips of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you there, Abba? Are you there? The weight of this sin, the weight of this flesh, it's so heavy, Father. I can't even feel your presence. Help me. But still, no words of condemnation. I thirst. I thirst, he says. And as poignant as these words are, it's the flow of grace that follows thereafter from the cross that just amazes me and humbles me every time I think about it closely, surrounded by people who are actually delighting in his agony. It's hard enough to be surrounded by people that just don't care. But when they're rejoicing in every spasm of your agony, when they're feeling pleasure and exaltation in every bit of your pain, they're cheering your death and tormented by people with unholy hearts so curved in upon themselves that I know I would likely pray for their consignment to a fiery hell. That's what I do. Instead, Jesus says, Father, oh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And racked by a level of pain that would certainly drive me to a delirious focus on my own needs. I mean, I'd be thinking about every single screaming muscle and every single tortured breath, thinking at that moment about nothing but my own needs. The heart of Jesus stretches out, trying to bring comfort to his mother and his friend, forging a family with his last breaths. He says to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. Son, behold your mother. And tumbling toward a death so awful that had it been me, I know I would have turned only in upon myself. Jesus instead turns his attention outward, seizing one last opportunity to draw a single, precious, tortured, disfigured, sinful soul into the family of the kingdom of God. And to the repentant thief, he declares, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And then with two last defining exclamations, Jesus shows us what it is to love God with everything and to love neighbor 
absolutely and utterly. It is finished, he cries out. And the Greek word there that John supplies in his gospel telling is to die, and it literally means debt paid, mission accomplished, job done, Father. It is finished. I have finished the work for which you sent me. I have surrendered myself as the full and final sacrifice needed to pay the price for their sin. I have shown them the height and the depths of your redeeming love. I have made it possible, Father, for them to be our neighbors again. Then with his last words, he declares his complete surrender to the love that moves toward God from him and his complete surrender to the love of God that moves now toward him. Father, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that, the gospel says, Jesus breathed his last. I need Good Friday for two reasons. Maybe you do too. The first is because without Good Friday, I can easily get to thinking that I'm quite a loving person. I can get to thinking that I'm pretty far along the journey, that I'm worthy of salvation. It won't be that much of a stretch for God because of how loving a person I am. But when I stand at the foot of Christ's cross, I realize that if that is what love really looks like, I'm not in the game, much less the league. And maybe you're not too. I don't know. When Jesus says to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, he really is calling us to a new way of living that most of us, if we're honest about it, must confess that we're still very early on the journey toward. Can I hear an amen? Is that true? That's true. But that, I think, is the second reason that all of us need Good Friday. It is why it's so important that we keep coming back here like we're doing and, and, and in other ways keep coming to the cross day by day in between. It's because Good Friday reminds us that there is a love at work on our behalf that is far and thankfully 
greater than any of us, a love that keeps in spite of our sin, in spite of our blindness, in spite of our recurrent falling back into the same patterns, a love that keeps stretching itself out to take hold of us. While we are still sinners. Jesus, my friends, invites us to nothing less than to enter into the very life of God. Not just in heaven, but beginning now. And that life is fundamentally defined by love. The kind of love we see upon the cross. And though we're not there, how awesome How amazing that this life still reaches out to take us in. Because we'd be lost without him. And if you would tonight humbly accept, along with me, your need, your desperate need of his love, if you are ready to commit yourself, maybe for the first time, now that you really see the proportions of this, or to rededicate yourself in a deeper way, to the intentional journey toward this life with him, if that's where you are, then Jesus, not a pastor, Jesus himself bids you come unto him. Come unto him. Come to this table tonight. Come with all that you are. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Come and receive his amazing love. Take more deeply into yourself the life and the redeeming love that he has given. Amen. Amen.